You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I approach the sacred podium this morning with more than my usual trepidation due to the fact that I'm reminded of a parallel suggested to me by a book uh, written by a man named Jacob Burkhardt. It's called The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. And this book is based on the supposition that there were two great peaks in human history. The peak of ancient classical times, Augustus and Pericles, and the peak of the Italian Renaissance, and that everything that passed between for 1,500, 1,600 years was a, a valley. Well, that's a parallel. It probably doesn't suggest anything to you, except it will when I remind you that Tuesday speaker was Dr. Coker. Tomorrow's speaker is Dr. Siemens. And here I am in the middle. <laughs> The valley between two peaks. I'd like to say something about uh, both those speakers, but time uh, stands in the way of my directing the usual stream of complimentary adjectives towards our dean, which my respect and affection for him would otherwise prompt. <laughs> and about, um, about Dr. Siemens, I have nothing more to say except that he is, and I say this seriously, one of the finest public speakers I have ever heard in my life. Really an excellent chapel. Do not miss it tomorrow. Well, that uh, concludes my introductory remarks, and now I will pass on to the body of my material. My text is just one, uh, one verse from the 13th chapter of Corinthians, which I'll come to again later. I've been doing a lot of thinking. <laughs> last, it's the last verse, the last line in the 13th chapter, if you are... Obsessed with getting out your Bibles. Oh, it is a nice sound. You hear that. You can get it out in Russell if you like to. And it's the, it's the last line of the 13th chapter of Corinthians. Some of us have it memorized. <laughs> anyway, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about essences, about the fundamental things that are important in life, the things that really do last, and the things that don't last, the things that are permanent, the things that are correspondingly transient. And I would like to share that with you this morning. I've been thinking about just what is it that's fundamentally important and what is not. I had a, I had a lesson in this uh, last summer. I'm just such a hysteric. Last summer, there, uh, we, I was here in Wilmore, living in my home, and it got dark. I, I, maybe it wasn't last summer, it was spring or summer, but anyway, it got dark and it was humid and the television went off. I was disconnected from reality when the television, I couldn't watch it. <laughs> what? The radio went off, the lights went out. I thought, this is it, it's the end of the world, it's a tornado. Uh, it was dark and thundery, and so I thought my house was gonna get hit by it. And it was fairly alarming, the, the symptoms were, were there. So I had this experience, and this is an experience which everyone should have who is oriented or thinks in terms that comfort or success or happiness are related to material things or the present group of material things that you have at your disposal. Because I was really convinced, uh, on good, in good faith, that ruin was about to overtake my entire earthly kingdom. So <laughs> I, I asked myself, you know, I need to dart down into the basement and, and save myself for future ministry. And what will I take with me? <laughs> what will I take with me? I mean, I have a house full of junk. What would I save? And so I looked around and in cartoons, in cartoons, you know, the little Ant-Man can carry a big everything, big locomotive. But in reality... A human being can carry only very little, especially a terrified human being that's scuttling downstairs. <laughs> so I gathered up a few things, you know, a picture here and there. But it, it reminded me, and the tornado obviously did not come, and it has a happy ending. But it reminded me 
of how little I would have taken with me to, uh, to survive, how much I really value. I mean, I thought I was going to have to choose on everything I own. I thought I was going to have to choose just what I was going to carry out or downstairs in the house. And it turned out to be not true, but it was a very viable lesson. It was a kind of a spiritual experience for me to be reminded of how little I really required uh, to, be, to be happy, to feel that I'd saved something of value. And in fact, I could have saved nothing and been happy just to be alive. It was a very viable lesson. Well, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. To take things, kind of throw them in the fire of, of logic and experience and doctrine and uh, boil them down to their essence, to their distilled essence. For instance, I might ask you, I hadn't planned to say this, but I'm going to. What is the essence of Asbury College? An excellent question. Well, there are things that contribute to the ethos of Asbury College, and they have value. They have transit value. That is to say, they change. They either will change inevitably with the passage of time, or they will cease for you because you'll graduate. But they are important now. But they are not the essence of Asbury College. What is the essence of Asbury College? What is it that you value about this institution? And what is it you will look back on when you graduate and go out into the, quote, real world, unquote, and look back fondly and nostalgically on your happy times here? Well, there are two things. One is the Blessed Holy Spirit. The Blessed Holy Spirit is the essence, the heart and soul of Asbury College. And the second thing, the second element that you really truly love is each other. Things that make this college dear and precious to you is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, the presence of, your, in the Holy, of the Holy Spirit individually and collectively, and your friends. So that, and some teachers. I mean, some of you are friends with one another and some of you are friends with teachers. So that what you really have here is a Christian community. As properly defined, a Christian community is God the Holy Spirit and some of his people. That's what Asbury College is, and that's what you like about it. If you think about what you really love about this college, I think you'll agree that I'm right. So that the essence of Asbury College is the Holy Spirit and her people. That reminds me, it's a little aside, but I do it as a favor to my dear friends. There is no justice in this world, let me tell you that. And one of the most unjust things that has ever happened in the history of Asbury College is that our concert band should have to be away next weekend during Torp Week. <laughs> so, in keeping with my remarks about the essence of Asbury College and in the interests of fellowship, so dear to us all, I would just like to tell all you girls out there that the men in the concert band are available for twerping this weekend and two weekends away. <laughs> I think that's only fair. Well, so that when we're thinking about, I'm not speaking of myself, I tried that last year and it was a disaster. Oh, funny to you. Not funny to me. Anyway, when we're talking about essences, you can apply the same logic, the same process, the same mental process to doctrine, to theology. What is it, for instance, that those of us, all of us in this room, have in common? What do we have in common by way of our fundamental beliefs as brothers and sisters in Christ? Uh, those of us in the Salvation Army, the Christian Missionary Alliance, a wonderful group, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the Nazarene Church, the Wesleyan Church. What is it? What are the fundamental points we have in common? We have some things at odds, not necessarily at odds, some things that differ among us, trivial points. But what do we have in common as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that leads me to, then, what I want to share with you. Nothing, uh, I suppose, very original. But that's the verse I wanted to talk to you about, the first uh, uh, Corinthians 13th chapter, last verse. Now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three. And I want to talk about those three. Simplest thing in the world. Easy to remember. Not so easy always to grasp in all of their implications. And as it's my conviction that each one of those is an active agent in our lives, not so easy to live. But faith, well, faith, the just shall live by faith, from Romans. 
the great call of Paul, the great call of the Protestant Reformation, the great call of our conversion, either in the past or in the future. Everyone who comes to Christ must come via the process described in that verse, that the just shall live by faith. Faith is the recognition that there was such a thing in the world and in your life as sin. It's not that what we do without Christ and without the Holy Spirit is wrong or uh, awkward or annoying or stupid or offensive. It is that it is fundamentally sinful. It is out of harmony with the basic drive, the basic creative good in the universe. It despoils our relationship with God. It offends God, whether it offends other people or not. It's incidental. Oftentimes it doesn't. Oftentimes we get encouragement from other people. So the first element in faith is to recognize that there was such a thing as sin. Then we must recognize that we need to escape from sin, from our sinful nature. Not just we recognize it. Yes, I see it. Good. Now, one more step. We have to escape from it. And the third step is to realize that there is only one means of escaping it, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this faith that I have described to you, which you're all familiar with those elements, is cannot be, it can never be merely mental assent. It cannot be a proposition. It cannot be an outlook. It cannot be a philosophy. It must be power. True faith depends on, requires a commitment to Christ. Because when you think about what is involved in the process and the transaction of the atonement, then the atonement must have force in your life. It must be the driving force in your life. You think about what Jesus Christ has done for you and is doing for you and will do for you. You think how much you owe him for that in, in gratitude and in love and the atonement comes to have force in your life. And the more you think about it, the more force the atonement has in your life until eventually come to the point that John speaks about in the eighth chapter, that you live, you actually live your life out in the revelation of Jesus Christ in resurrection power. What's the second element? Hope. Well, in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, Paul says that we have a hope set before us that's an anchor, sure and strong. It's a New English Bible translation, an anchor, sure and strong. Well, what is that hope? It's the best thing in the world. It's just this. Our hope as Christians is the recognition that everything is going to turn out all right in the end. Not only all right, but perfectly all right. Ideally all right. Completely, forever finished all right. Now, this is not the same thing as saying that everything is going to turn out all right in the end or in the short run in a material or a physical sense or merely, and I emphasize the merely, emphasize, emphasize, put that in italics in your mind, three underlines, arrows. I am not referring to the idea that everything is going to turn out all right in a merely earthly sense, a merely physical or, or material sense. That idea is either, it's either comical or it's cruel, depending on how seriously you take it. It might be both comical and cruel. It might be like a practical joke that goes bad. You pull a chair out and somebody breaks their back. That's the, uh, that's to me the idea that God promises that everything's going to turn out all right in a physical way or a material way. It's kind of a theological practical joke. I'm not referring to that at all. I'm referring to the, to the recognition, to the promise that everything is going to turn out all right in the only way that really matters. That as we learn to live in Christ, we learn to live for Christ, we become more like Christ. And the longer we live in Christ and the longer we live for Christ, the more like Christ we become so that the end result of this process is this hope that's set before us is that no person, no thing, 
no circumstance can stand between us and becoming like and living in Christ's perfect love. Now that's the hope in the Bible. Well, faith begets hope and hope feeds faith. These two together produce, rest in, they are evidence of, they support, they are the result of love. These three, uh, but the greatest of these is love. And what is Christian love? Well, our Lord says very clearly, the first and greatest commandment is that we should love him wholly and completely. And the second is likened to the first, that we should love one another. Now, this is difficult sometimes to talk about in an objective, objective just the pressure, objective <laughs> and fair and open-minded way, because our interest in understanding Christian love is enormously high. Our interest in understanding any doctrine, any idea, is proportional to its attractiveness. And there's nothing more attractive than love. There's nothing, the idea of God's love for us and our love for one another in God, in Christ, is so enormously attractive that we spend a very great deal of time thinking about it and praying about it, reading about it. And so there are a lot of ideas about it around. Everybody has ideas, and I, and I do too. And it is sometimes difficult, often in a large group like this, difficult to talk about Christian love, trying to focus on the, the clear teachings of the scripture, because there are so many ideas, not inherently harmful ideas. I mean, they were really good on the surface of them, good ideas. Uh, and so this is sometimes difficult. It's difficult for me right now, obviously. But I think Christian love can be defined more by way of the example of the Savior than doctrinally. And I'll explain what I mean. I think I'm on safe ground. I think I'm on Wesleyan ground when I say that. Christian love, let me ask you what Christian love is. Is Christian love liking everybody? Right, these, are, these are questions which you're not supposed to answer right now. I'll give you a whole string of them, then you can answer them silently. Is Christian love approving everything someone says or does? Is Christian love never rebuking another person, never discriminating against the actions or the words or the behavior and the general behavior of another person? Is it never evaluating another person against some objective standard, which both you and that other person at one time in life agreed to accept? Is, it, is, is that Christian love? Those things are not doing those things. Well, it's an open question doctrinally, and you can perhaps put points of view forward from both points, uh, from both sides of that uh, proposition, and you can perhaps find support. Let's look at the example of Jesus Christ, and let us see what Christian love was in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, did Jesus Christ like everybody? Did Jesus Christ never rebuke? Did he never draw away? Did he never evaluate the performance, the, uh, uh, the words, the, the, uh, the standards of other persons, and call them to account for falling short of some standard? Was Jesus Christ never alone? Did Jesus Christ never express uh, preference for the company of one person uh, over the company of other persons, all of whom had an equal claim on him? Um, I, I, they, that's, those are rhetorical questions. That is, questions which do not require an answer, because you know the answers from, from the Gospels. When Christ lived Christian love, and Christ was love in the flesh, we have never a better standard. We have never a better example. Christ was love personified. Christ was the love of God made alive among us. And what was love to him? Love to him was to pour out his life that human beings like ourselves could live in joy and peace and Christian unity. Or put another way, the love of Jesus Christ was that he should die for his fellows. And he said that. He said, greater love hath no man. So that 
Christian love for us must be that we should pour out our lives, that our fellows should have peace and joy and Christian unity. That is not the same thing as approving and never rebuking and not caring. It is the same thing as living in as much as it lies as with the help of Christ Jesus, a pattern set down by himself in his own earthly life in the Gospels. We must be prepared in Christian love to die for one another. Oh, you say, I am, I am, I am, oh, I am. So safe to say that because there are no guards around here. We are perfect security. You are in no danger, probably no danger of dying for the faith of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can say that easily, but I do not refer to physical death necessarily. I refer to prepared for that, yes, but that's not the challenge I'm holding out now. The challenge I'm holding out now is that we have to be prepared to die emotionally. We have to be prepared to die socially. We have to be prepared to die to our reputation to our pride, and we have to be prepared to do this for persons that we do not like, of whom we do not approve, with whom we are not in accord, and with whom we do not wish to spend more than a minimum amount of fellowship. We must be prepared to do this for the people that bother us the most. Not only do they bother us, we have to be prepared to die emotionally, socially, to pride and to reputation and to emotional, spiritual comfort. We have to be prepared to do that for people who actively dislike us. Now that is Christian love. That is what Christ died. That is what we must do if we live that pattern that he set down for us in the Gospels. Then, if we have faith, hope, and love as the fundaments of our Christian commitment to holiness, which I think we do, then let's look at the opposite. Very briefly, let's look at the opposite and let us, if these are the great virtues, what are the great sins? Now you've probably heard before, I'll tell you again, it's you have perhaps heard this from me, you've heard it from other people. It's my own conviction that the great sins are not those that are determined by time and place. The great sins are those that strike at the heart of our dear religion, so that faith and hope and love have their opposites. And those are the great sins. Those are the great dangers to our faith and to our way of life. Those are the great weapons of Satan. Well, then what is the opposite of faith? The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is indifference. What is the opposite of hope? The opposite of hope is despair. What is the opposite of love? The opposite of love is selfishness. And because love is the great virtue, selfishness must be great sin. Selfishness is what the medieval theologians called pride. And it is kind of the father of all sins, selfishness is, because despair and indifference are forms, in a way, they are forms of selfishness. They are certainly forms of self-centeredness. So that we have the fundaments of our faith, faith, hope, and love. We have the great dangers to our faith, which are indifference, despair, and selfishness. We have, therefore, the heart and soul of the Christian religion, so that we could all of us commit ourselves to it. We could all of us, and we, and we must commit ourselves to it. We must go out of here determined to live Christ-like lives, to, to love Christ with all of our heart, and to love and be prepared to die for our fellow human beings, to care for them and to nurture them. That is the essence of the Christian religion, to shun indifference, to fight despair, and to try and live unselfishly for one another at Asbury College. Now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You are dismissed.